How's the volume on the PA system? Never feel happy for no good reason. <laughs> I just walked over through the woods and I noticed I was smiling the whole way. And then I came into the staff dining room, the way we come in, and I was smiling in there. And one of my friends said, you're smiling. <laughs> and then I was just doing some walking meditation and I was feeling happy. No good reason. That's the best kind. This past winter I was on retreat for three months and I was part of the time I was taking part in a retreat like this at a different place, but a lot of people, but I tend to wake up very early when I'm on a retreat. Not all, yeah, almost always. I'm an early one of, an early yogi. Some are late yogis. Sometimes I'm both. I was doing walking meditation in the early morning. I think if I ever become fully enlightened, I will be either moving or turning. <laughs> you should pay attention in those turnings. But I was walking early by myself. No one else was up. And I had this, I had this, this feeling and thought came that this that would be a thought it would be a really good time to die right then. You don't tell everyone that <laughs> kind of thing. I did tell my teacher. Because <laughs> there was mindfulness and the mind was somewhat unified and a lot of equanimity for some reason. And I thought it would be kind of a drag for the poor yogi who found the corpse. And there are one or two other people who would, one or two other people who might, and I think it was not so cool of me <laughs> to die right then, but, but otherwise it just seemed like a really good time. Like I was right there for it. This is kind of a plug for walking meditation. <laughs> I should start my talk. Though <laughs> <clears throat> well, it might be a tragic error, but anyway, <laughs> here goes. Once long ago, this was when Brahmadatta was, was king in Benares, so not quite as long ago as when the swift swan was around. This took place in the town of Takasila, in the region of Gandhara. The Bodhisatta, the one who would become the Buddha, took birth as an ox. Do you know what an ox is, everyone? Some people might not know the word ox, who aren't English speakers. It's a, a bull cow, especially one that's strong in poles. Now this was not an ordinary ox, even when still just baby, tiny calf, soft, silky coat. It's like the finest Benares silk, softer than that. It was a rich golden brown color. It seemed to almost glow from within. It was like the color of polished cowrie wood that comes from the ancient peat bogs in the land of the long white cloud. The calf's nose and hose were the color of polished jet. And the velvety tongue was the color of a late red autumn rose. The eyes were a deep blue flecked with gold like fine lapis lazuli. And when the calf was still quite young, was presented by his owners to a, a Brahmin holy man who was passing by, come to call. This was a custom often to give gifts 
presence of an ox like this to a holy man. And, and it was seen and understood that the merit of such a gift was especially beneficial and fruitful. And the Brahmin was delighted with this uh, gift of the baby calf. And he cared for it really well. And he called the calf Nandi Visala, which means great joy. And he treated him as though he were his own child and fed him uh, uh, rice porridge that he made with his own hands and fed it to the calf. And as the calf grew older, fed him the finest grains of rice and grasses and hay, the best that he could, that he could afford and the best he could find. He would pet the young calf and soothe him when he was lonely or frightened. And he was often seen walking through the town with his little friend, along the village roads, the paths, and into the town market. And thriving under the care and love of the Brahmin, the little calf grew and grew. Finally, fully grown, was a great, mighty, powerful ox. But even though he was large and powerful, he was always gentle and kind, and, and he did whatever tasks the Brahmin would ask him to do, and he did them happily. He could pull stumps of trees and huge boulders out of the fields, whatever it would be. The Brahmin just had to tie a rope around the stump or the rock and attach it to the yoke on the ox. And he would pull and he'd say, pull, pull great joy. And he would pull it out of the ground. But he was always gentle and the children in the village could even ride on him if he walked through the town. And one day, great joy, Nandi Vesala said to himself, this Brahmin has taken such good care and great pains to look after me, always treated me with kindness, fed me the best food he could, treated me as his own child. In all of India, there is no ox who can pull as much weight as I can. How about if I were to repay the Brahmin the cost of my nurture by making proof of my great strength? A great joy walked over to the Brahmin's low uh, mud-baked house, sun-baked house, and he put his great horned head through the window. And the Brahmin was sitting there at a little table mending a book with a, had a torn page. And, and great joy said, my master and friend, you have always been kind to me, but you are poor. I want to use my great strength to help you. Listen, I have a plan. The astonished Brahmin's jaw dropped. <laughs> because even though talking oxen were not completely unheard of, they were very rare. And even though he'd long suspected that Nandi Visala was exceptionally uh, intelligent, he'd never actually spoken. I have an ox who can talk, exclaimed the Brahmin. Oh yes, master, said Great Joy calmly. And there are many more things in the world that are just as wonderful. But never mind about all that. <laughs> listen to my idea. Brahman put down his work and listened. Tomorrow, said Great Joy, go thou Brahman, to some merchant rich in herds. Wager him 500 silver pieces that your ox can draw a hundred carts fully loaded with stones and gravel and sand. It's impossible, exclaimed the Brahmin. No ox has ever pulled that much weight. Can't be done. Trust me, said Great Joy. Have I ever let you down? The Brahmin thought to himself, and upon reflection, he realized that actually Great Joy had never let him down. So he agreed with this plan. So the next day, after his breakfast and after caring for his friend, his beloved ox, he put on his best shirt and tied on his sandals, and he went into the town, and he went to a tea shop where the wealthier merchants and uh, farmers and business people of the town would gather for a mid-morning break. And he sat at a little table, and when a wealthy merchant that he knew, who was famous for having very large herds in the town, he entered the little cafe, the tea shop, and he called out, my friend, will you join me? Why not, answered the wealthy merchant. 
So they exchanged some pleasantries and shared some tea and sweets. And the Brahmin began a neighborly discussion about cattle in general and the relative merits of this breed or that breed and slowly brought the conversation around to which oxen in town were especially strong. Oh, said the merchant in an offhand way, so-and-sos or so-and-sos, really quite fine beasts. They can pull with the best of them, I suppose. But, he added in a confident voice, there really are no oxen in town that can compare with mine for real strength. Surely, said the Brahmin, yours are magnificent animals, for I have seen them, and it may be that there are none finer. Still, I know an ox who can pull 100 carts fully loaded with boulders, gravel, and sand. Impossible, laughed the merchant. Listen, my friend, I know cattle. No ox can pull that much. This world is one of weights and measures. Everything has its limits. An ox, after all, is just an ox. Can't be done. Oh, but it can, said the Brahmin. And where is such an animal to be found? asked the merchant. Oh, I've got him at home, <laughs> replied the Brahmin nonchalantly. Perhaps you'd be interested in a small wager. Nothing too grand. Just for the sport, say 500 silver pieces. You're on, said the wealthy merchant. 500 pieces it is, tomorrow morning. Just when the sun rises high enough to hit the top of the tallest mango tree in the square, Bring your ox, and I'll have 100 carts fully loaded. Till then, my friend, let's call it a day. The merchant rose and flourishing his sleeves of his elegant robe, he walked smiling away from the shop, and the poor Brahmin begins to get a little worried. He shakes his head, and he starts muttering to himself, and he's wondering, what was I thinking? Doing the bidding of an ox. Even if it's a talking ox, a very intelligent ox. A word of this bet spread through the town and everyone started talking about it and a lot of side bets, money changing hands. And everyone's waiting for the morning. All night the poor Brahmins tossing and turning couldn't sleep, so worried. Could great joy pull the cards? The odds were really against it. When he gets up early, he goes directly to Great Joy's stall, muttering to himself under his breath. He picks up a stiff brush and he begins to brush Great Joy. Brushes and the dust is flying up, shining in the sunlight that's coming in through the window. He brushes and slaps him and cleans him up, his broad back and his sides. When he gets him looking as good as he wanted, he put a rope around the great ox's neck and led him through cheering crowds across the town. Everyone's out clapping and waving. He comes to the town square, the sun just hitting the top of the tallest mango tree. There's the wealthy merchant, big smile on his face. There is the line of carts. Where Brahman looks at these, he's never seen so many carts, let alone fully loaded ones, rocks and gravel and sand. What a fool I've been for having listened to an ox. I, a man, listening to a beast and see the result, I am lost. But puts on a bold front leads great joy through the crowd up to the front of the line of carts. Merchant is waiting there. Merchant says, so, are you ready, friend? Certainly, of course we're ready, replied the Brahmin. So the merchant claps his hands. Two strong men carrying a yoke step from the crowd and they place it on great joy's shoulders and they tie ropes from the cart, the front cart crowd gets quiet. Hush falls over the town. The only sound is the swish of great joy's tail. 
Great joy looks over the crowd, shakes his head, snorts as if to say, what's all the fuss? The Brahmin, feeling all eyes upon him, nervously he takes his seat on the bench of the front cart and he picks up a whip that's lying there and cracks it in the air over Great Joy's back. On you rascal, on you wretch, pull the carts. When Great Joy heard the crack of the whip, the harsh words, he opened his eyes wide. Whips and curses, is it, he said, not for this ox. I'm no rascal, I'm not the wretch, he calls me. And he planted his hooves firmly into the ground like the posts of, of a strong building, wouldn't move an inch. The crowd goes wild. They start throwing clods of earth, jeering and yelling. Great joy wouldn't budge. Well, he wouldn't even try, just stands there. My good friend, says the merchant, that is indeed a special ox. <laughs> the crowd began to drift away and the merchant laughing so hard his tears are coming from his eyes, demands payment for the bet. Says, better luck next time. Then Great Joy lets himself be unhitched. He and the Brahmin trudge home through jeering crowds, villagers. Gets home and he turns Great Joy loose in the yard, goes into his house and throws himself down on his bed, weeping, agony of grief. He's lost all the savings he had everything, every penny. Nandi Visala, great joy, strolls up to the window, sticks his head in again, sees the merchant lying on the bed and asks him if he's just taking a nap. How could I be taking a nap? I've lost 500 pieces of silver. I've lost everything I have with this foolish wager. And the whole town has been laughing at me. And it's all your fault for telling me to make this stupid bet. Brahman, in all the time I have lived here with you, have I ever broken a pot or squeezed up against somebody, made messes about the place? Did I ever injure a child, pull, fail to pull a load? Have I ever done anything or given you any reason not to trust me? Have I ever caused you any harm or sorrow? Never, my child, replied the Brahman in an anguished voice. And why did you crack a whip above my back and call me wretch and rascal? Was this truly the reward I deserved at your hands? I who only wanted to work hard for you and help you? You have only yourself to blame for this misfortune. Go back to the wealthy merchant, rich in herds, make another wager. This time bet him 1,000 pieces of silver. But remember, do not crack the whip or call me rascal again. <coughs> My friend, cried the Brahmin, I will do it. I will bet again, and this time I won't let you down. Good, said Great Joy, because if you don't let me down, I will surely never let you down. So the next morning, the Brahmin goes back to the tea shop. There's the merchant hanging out with his friends, buying rounds for the whole place, bagels and cream cheese. <laughs> hot chocolate, whatever they want. <laughs> May I join you? Asked the Brahmin. Sure, by all means, says the merchant. Have you not brought me great joy? And he jingled his bag of coins. Friend, said the merchant, let's bet again. What? Don't you know when you're beaten? Come, said the merchant calmly, one more bet. The ox and the carts, just as before. Only this time, let's bet a thousand silver pieces. What do you say? The thought of winning was irresistible for the merchant. Fools like this don't show up every day, he thought to himself. So he gladly accepted the bet. So the Brahmin returned home, speaking gently to great joy. This time he didn't put a rope around his neck. And they walked side by side through the town just like they were out for a stroll, talking to one another, gently stroking the mighty bull's sides and his back. <coughs> so news of the second wager again has spread through the town. People started gathering side bets again. A lot of the 
villagers started making fun and shouting insults and taunts at the two of them. But some of them noticed there was a difference in the way they were acting. And they called out encouraging words. So the 100 carts were still there, just the next day, tied securely together. So great joys led up to the front of the line, walks up there, tosses his head, snorts. Huge snort echoed through the whole square. The sun shining down on his back. Power seemed to pulse from him. His horns seemed as wide as the entire square of the town. His tail lashing behind him was like the tail of a dragon. The crowd gasped. What an ox. Maybe he will do it. The merchant motions with his hand. The yoke is placed once more. Ropes are tied. The crowd becomes quiet. The only sound, the swish of Great Joy's tail. Brahman takes a garland of flowers, hangs it over Great Joy's neck, sits on the bench, lean forward, stroking Nandi Visala on the back. What do you say, friend? Shall we show them what real strength is? Now then, my friend, pull if you will. Great Joy planted his hooves into the sun-warmed earth, stiffened his legs till they were like the trunks of ancient trees. Putting his head down, he began to pull. To everyone's amazement, the line of carts began to move. Then Great Joy, lifting his head high, began to stride forward. And the wheels began to turn faster, and he began to trot. The ox has won, cried the crowd. Great Joy has won. Faster and faster rolled the carts till he pulled them at a trot all the way around the square. The crowd was running after the line of carts, laughing, calling for joy. He had indeed achieved the impossible. Shaking his head in amazement, the wealthy merchant counted out 1,000 silver pieces, put them in a soft purse, and hung them gently around the neck of the great ox. Some of the villagers who'd bet and won, they gave some of their winnings to great joy also. The village children crowded around to pet him. Some of the bolder ones climbed on his back to ride through the village as he went home. The Brahmin held a celebratory feast. He invited everyone in the village, even the wealthy merchant. Big party. And thus he gained by reason of his trust in the bodhisattva, and the two passed their days in friendly companionship and ease. This story and the one from last week are based on what are called Jataka tales. There's a collection of them, stories of Uh, past lives of the Buddha, often taking birth as an animal, different kinds, and working on, uh, you could say, working, perfecting what are called the paramis, these beautiful qualities, generosity, resolve, renunciation, kindness, and so forth. And we could tease out threads of different ones of these uh, um, qualities if we were to look at this as a kind of teaching story. Generosity, kindness, for example, steadfastness, determination, faith, trust. And there's another key teaching that's key here that we see, and that has to do with our actions and the uh, mental energies that give rise to them, understanding this relationship. And this really leads us, can lead us directly to uh, the Buddha's teachings on the law of karma. It's a subject that doesn't get talked about that much, although it's threaded throughout the, the teachings. And understanding teachings on karma or kamma in Pali 
it's seen as an aspect, uh, one of the aspects of wise or right view is understanding this, having a, a practical understanding of karma. And I think maybe because the word has become so um, much part of the common everyday speech in the last few decades, it's used in an offhand way all the time. I think it, it lends, it, it adds to this tendency for it to be very, um, there's some understanding, a connection to some aspect of it, but it tends to be superficial and um, oversimplified in a certain way. It leads to a lot of confusion. And the subject of karma, of kamma, is very uh, related to teachings and understandings, the pointings to rebirth. It's also threaded throughout everything the Buddha taught, references to the idea of rebirth. And, and in a way, the teachings are inseparable. But this brings up a lot of questions. You know, do I have to believe in this? I don't believe in it. Or, well, if there's no self, who gets reborn? Or is, is what I'm experiencing now somehow the result of past actions? Or who experiences the results of past, past actions if there's no self? Is the suffering I'm experiencing now because of something I did in some past life? Is it my fault somehow? You know, in this almost blaming quality, well, it's just your karma or something. It's like as though karma is something like fate, some power or energy that emerges out of the past that we're somehow responsible for and powerless to do anything about. And I think we have to be really careful because this superficial relationship to this teaching leads us to, to think that we can account for our own or someone else's circumstances so it's just just somehow the unfolding of this and we have to be careful we don't use it that way or to address issues as social injustice or poverty or illness or things like that just saying well it's just karma unfolding it's a real mistake i don't think um, there's any value to that it only adds to confusion and suffering in the world but what this teaching can do, where it does have some use, is as an aid to help us uh, focus on how we're um, living our lives, how we respond to the present moment. And it can serve as a focal point for choices we make, response to right now, what's happening right now. So in exploring this topic, this subject, it's helpful to bear in mind that the unfolding of cause and effect, which we've spoken about, is, is a vast and complicated process. And Andrea has t- spoken about this in both of her last two talks, I think, and we, others of us have spoken about this way. The complexity, it's, it's like we're living in an ocean of cause and effect. We're swimming in that. And it's made up this vast network of causal threads, you could say, ripples. And they're constantly shifting and vibrating and rebounding off one another. And our actions, our volitional actions are one part of this, one one of the threads. It's like if you had a pond that was perfectly still, maybe Gaston Pond on a still day, and you toss a pebble in, there will be a set of ripples that go out from that. And then you toss another one, and another one, and another one. And those ripples move, and then they bounce off one another, and they create another pattern, and you keep tossing them in. And you toss them since the beginning of time. It gets very complicated. To try to tease out a single thread in there would be really, really difficult. to account for the way the moment as it has come to be, to trace that and tease that apart. And as Andrea said, it's one of the imponderables and, and to think about it too much is said to lead, she said to madness, I've actually heard it will cause your head to explode in seven pieces. <laughs> I don't want to hear any 
over in the corners here. <laughs> so you could say when the Buddha looked at this ocean of causation, <laughs> he chose to focus on the area of intention, one aspect of this. We've spoken about intention, came up last night in the, in the questions. And this leads us to this, this mental factor that gives rise, the energetic impulse that gives rise to actions. <clears throat> Brings us to the, the meaning, literal meaning of the word karma. Kamma is action. We often use it, uh, the word we, we simplify the word for the fruits of action, which we often think karma is the results, is kamma vipaka. Vipaka is the result. So there's an essential understanding here when we explore this teaching. We, we bring into our minds that all actions are born, they have their origin, their genesis in the mind. Actions don't happen without intention in the mind born there. So when Joseph was talking about this kind of pure energetic quality that gives rise intention on that level, chetana is the Pali word for that. That just is, is this neutral factor, this energetic uh, energy, you could say. But it lies at the heart of the process. And the Buddha stressed this. He said in one place, intention, I tell you, is kamma, intending one does kamma, one acts by way of body, speech, and mind. So this, this chetana is, is just neutral, it's just energy, like electricity, like Joseph's example, plugging in the cord. But it can be accompanied by a rise from a whole lot of different, what we could call motivations that accompany that qualities that color or flavor that. You could say the motivation there, any action. So the intention to act may be um, constellated with or colored by um, desire or greed or love or generosity or delusion or wisdom or combination. And so if we look at the world and all the avoidable suffering Some of it isn't, but a lot of it is. All the wars, the violence, struggle. I mean, what's happening there? All of that is born in the mind. Doesn't just happen. Actions born of of unwholesome mind states, they tend to um, born of greed or fear, hatred. That's what's under. That's what gives rise to those confusion. I mean, if we look, we'll see the seeds of war in our own minds and hearts, friends, isn't it? It's right there. We see the seeds of war and the seeds of love. In the Buddha, there's a famous verse from the Dhammapada. Mind is the forerunner of all things. Mind is their chief. They are all mind made. If with an impure mind one speaks or acts, suffering follows like the wheel of a cart follows the foot of great joy, the ox. I added great joy in there. It does say the foot of the ox. Mind is the forerunner of all things. Mind is their chief. They are all mind made. If with a pure mind one speaks or acts, happiness follows like one's never departing shadow. And so for our own happiness and for happiness in the world, an understanding of of this way this functions is really, really important and forms how we live on this fundamental level. And the impact in the world is great. You know, when we, we give, we're give, put in a position where we can take responsibility for the motivations we choose to follow. And mindfulness gives us a chance to actually see that. 
see what's going on there. So we have this possibility that we might make a choice, that we're not just acting out of habit. We can see what energies are there, what's driving the bus. And we can choose to get off the bus. So this motivation is key to understanding this teaching and how this functions. Because the, the weight in terms of karma is not found so much within the action, but it's in the heart, it's in this motivation. Because different action, the same action, the exact same action would have very different motivations. And we can think of examples like this. Like let's say someone takes um, a bunch of um, flammable materials and and they, they put them all together and they take a match and they start a fire. Now, it could be that they're an arsonist and they're burning down a building, or it could be that they're starting a, a fire to cook meal for their family. And there's many things that happen as a result of our actions that are not born of uh, a direct, an intention and, a, and, and any motivation with that. You know, like we're taking a walk. There's so many leaves down now and we're walking down the road and the leaves have covered one of those woolly caterpillars that have been out and, and we step walking along and we accidentally kill the caterpillar because we didn't see it under there. We didn't intend to cause harm. Through no intention, the caterpillar meets its demise. There's no karma from that, no karmic weight. We didn't see it, it's an accident. Things like that happen sometimes. But there's a causal flow. There's a flow of cause and effect from, from something like that. So someone's following behind us, we're walking the loop. The leaves have blown away. They see the caterpillar, they jump aside to avoid stepping on it. They fall and break their leg. We hear them cry out, we turn around, it's our VR, our Vipassana romance. (laughs) We rush to the rescue, we help them get to the hospital, we go along with them in the car, make a connection. We fall in love, we buy a, happen to buy a winning lottery ticket, and we live happily ever after. <laughs> so the, the caterpillar's demise is part of this unfolding, right? <laughs> it was causal flow, but there was not an intention to harm the poor caterpillar. So karmic unfolding is, is part of a process. The process of how things come to be the way they are. It's one thread. There's other factors in this, as in a description like this. So we have this, a great image for understanding and talking about this subject is the image of planting seeds. The one seed, one seed, like these acorns, there's so many acorns out if you walk around, one of those can produce this huge oak tree, thousands of acorns, thousands of fruits. So the intention, volitional actions function in the same way. They, they can bring about many fruits, that one seed. Actions that are born of wholesome motivations tend to yield beneficial results. Those born of unwholesome leading to stress, suffering, difficulty, unpleasant results. So I think one reason the Buddha chose to focus on intentional action is because if we understand how this works, how this functions, it's really empowering and quite liberating because we have a chance to um, add something into the process. You know, if we, we look at the motivations that are informing our intentions to do something and we can choose we can plant the seeds of happiness, of liberation, or we can plant the seeds of suffering. It's up to us. I was giving a talk on this subject a few years ago, and 
And one of my friends said, you know, you, you need to jazz it up a little bit. I didn't tell the story to start it off with then. So that, that kind of jazzed it up a bit with that. But I came, I made a, uh, I made a, uh, an acronym out of karma to try to jazz up this little bit. Kind actions really matter a lot. <laughs> nice, huh? I think I've got something here. I don't want any of you stealing my idea. Somehow there's got to be a retirement plan in there for me. <laughs> That's not much, but it was my attempt to jazz up my talk. <laughs> so so it's, it's this idea of, of choosing the seeds we want to plant. It's really great, I think. And our colleague Guy Armstrong, when he talks on this subject, he, he calls karma the science of happiness. I think that's a great way to think of it. Because if we understand it, then it is a recipe for happiness. Human happiness, what we might think of as, as divine kind of happiness and the happiness of liberation. So a key part of uh, this exploration is understanding that things unfold in a lawful way. That in this flow of cause and effect, things are not random, that there's a lawfulness to it. A dy- it's a dynamic process and it's complex because new threads are constantly added, new ripples. But there are, are laws, kind of like the law of nature that governs how this unfolds. And this idea of seeds can give us a, a very clear image of this if we plant um, certain kinds of seeds will get a certain plant. If we plant daisies, we're going to get daisies, not Dutch iris. So the teachings on the law of karma apply in the same way. That actions bear uh, results uh, lawfully, in a lawful way, there's a lawful unfolding. And, and this is seen and understood in terms of a single life and also uh, from one life to the next over multiple lifetimes. And, this brings us to the subject of rebirth. Might not be meaningful. Might not be anything we relate to at all. And may bring up resistance for some of us. But we don't have to believe in it to understand how this this idea informs our, uh, the teachings on karma. Because really, you can see each mind moment, each moment, as a birth, a life, and a death. How many of them over the course of today? So we can see it in that way. So there's an image, I, don't, I didn't make this up, I got it somewhere, but I think it's really a great one. I don't know where I heard it. But picture a row of candles stretching all the way around the town square in the village of Takasila in the region of Gandhara. Great joy is there with you. And you're using one candle to light the next one. You have one that's lit, and you light a candle, and then the one you're holding goes out. Then you take that one that you just lit, and you pick it up, and you move it and light the next candle. You can see each mind moment in this way. So when we do this in this process, we're not taking the flame off of one candle and putting it on the next one. It's not the same flame. We didn't take that one and pick it up and move it over there. But there's a conditioning process. We bring certain conditions there. And one flame looks a lot like, they look a lot alike, but it's not the same flame, is it? But it's, it's a lawful process. We take those conditions, create those conditions, we get another flame, a new flame, a new flame, each mind moment. So when we think of what's reborn, we have to be careful that we don't turn what is essentially just this process of conditions that come together and turn that somehow into, solidify it into a thing, into one candle flame that gets moved along. It's not what happens there. So we can see the process of rebirth as a conditioning process in the same way. Actions conditioning the future. Conditioning, conditioning, in terms of 
one moment to the next. So there's a continuity there. There's a connection, but there's no thing that's carried over as a thing. There's no thingness to it. It's this process. So we can see it within one one lifetime, within multiple lifetimes, it doesn't matter. The key understanding is that there is this conditioning process and that actions bear results. There's a well-known sutta in uh, the Majjhima Nikaya and the Buddha is instructing his son uh, Rahula. He says, what do you think Rahula? What is a mirror for? It's for reflection, sir. In the same way, Rahula, bodily actions, verbal actions, mental actions should be done with repeated reflection. Whenever you want to do a bodily action, you should reflect on it thus. This bodily action I want to do, would it lead to self-affliction or to the affliction of others or to both? Would it be an unskillful action with painful consequences and painful results? If on reflection you see that it would be unskillful, that it would lead to painful consequences and results, then any bodily action of that sort would be unfit for you to do. But if on reflection, you see that it would not cause affliction, that it would be skillful with wholesome consequences and results, then it is fit for you to do that. And he says he should reflect in the same way with any action, speech, body, of mind. He should reflect on it during the process, before he does it, during it, and afterwards. And we might think, well, how could I possibly do all that? I'll always be second-guessing everything. There'd be no sense of living a spontaneous life. We'd be hypervigilant or somehow, but we could actually see this just as an aspect of living a conscious life where we pay attention to what we're doing, pay attention to the motivations and the, that give rise to our actions that accompany the intentions to act. Take responsibility And if we make a mistake, we can learn from that. So this can give us a a clear set of guidelines. We see, would this lead uh, towards happiness or away from happiness? Towards suffering, away from suffering? So we can feel confident when we, it's empowering and strengthening when we live and act with care and integrity, even if we, it doesn't matter if we blow it, sometimes we can feel confident, a sense of deep inner strength, balance, self-respect. We can grow from this. And so it's said, they say, only a Buddha can see the unfolding and the workings of karma in, in lives over, over lifetimes. But we can see how it, we can get a sense for this just in everyday life, everyday situations. You know, many of you reported, I know I've experienced on retreat, there often are these times when we're flooded by memories and a life review comes up in the mind. And often uh, there'll be things that come that we might not have thought about in a long time, might even not really remember. And sometimes there are memories of things that we've done that are very difficult. I remember one of my early retreats being flooded by memories of cruelty that I had I'd been very cruel to insects as a little boy. I was kind to them sometimes too, it was both, but horrible things. Little boys are often really cruel. And there was so much remorse about these actions. Oh, it was horrible. So we see how these past actions leave a mark in the mind and how the feelings uh, that can come from that in regard to those and the way this can impact our mind states. It's interesting because now I am the very favorite food of biting insects as an adult. And if you're with me, you're probably safe. And uh, I'm one of the few people I know who's bitten regularly by ladybugs. (laughs) <laughs> and I was traveling once in India with my friend and and I I was mercil- mercilessly attacked by bedbugs all night and my friend was lying there and slept through the whole thing didn't notice one 
So I kind of, you know, there's nothing they can do to me that will come anywhere close to what I did to some of their friends and relatives. So, And I won't say this is, you know, my karma, <laughs> but it's kind of interesting. Or we may have memories of past wholesome things that we've done, times when we were generous or kind. And the mind can be brightened by that and pleasant feelings will come and we see how this uh, past actions um, impact the mind state and how that impacts our meditation. And we can see how just our inner state affects the way others respond to us. You know, if we're filled with anger or envy or fear, jealousy, we'll get one response. And if the mind and heart are filled with love and generosity, compassion, really different response. So karma functions as this, I love this idea that it's a recipe, signs of happiness, a recipe for happiness, because we're given this responsibility and the choices that we make really impact the, the way our lives unfold. And so we begin with an understanding, exploration of our internal world of uh, what's going on there in the mind and the heart and the motivations that are there with our actions. And mindfulness gives us a chance to see what's going on. It brings these motivations to light. And some of the time, we aren't going to like what we see when we look. And often, our motivations will be mixed. Sometimes it's clear greed has the upper hand confusion, combination of those. But mindfulness changes everything because we can look and see. And there's this possibility then that we're not just running on automatic and that we're not just acting out our habits, our old conditioning. And that we can choose to act from wisdom and kindness, or at least refrain from acting out unskillful energies. We have to be careful that we don't oversimplify this whole thing. And there's not some one-to-one, you do this, this is the result. It's not like that. It's dynamic and complicated. It doesn't mean that if we are careful, that nothing bad will ever happen to us. That's not what this means. You know, this, the, the complexity of the causal ocean we swim in and the moment as it has come to be right now we can never understand all the threads that are part of that and it's not a closed system and and our actions and the choices we make they're one of many factors that come into play that inform the way things are and the way things unfold and everything we do impacts and informs and um, has has a conditioning effect on on everything that's there and has been there. So whatever we do in the moment, it it affects all of it. All sorts of factors. You can back to the image of a seed. You know, when you plant the seed, there's all kinds of things. When you planted it, where you planted it, if it's taken care of, if it's watered or fertilized. This is true for the seeds we plant in our own minds and hearts. And so how we're choosing to live now has this powerful influence on the way things unfold. So it's not a fixed system. It's constantly shifting. It's very dynamic. So goodness in the present tends to draw out the power of past wholesome actions. So the whole thing is conditioned and past unwholesome actions are conditioned by goodness in the, in the present. So the whole thing is constantly being influenced and changed. There's a story many of you know. Uh, from the time of the Buddha, there was a, uh, a man who became a disciple of the Buddha and uh, became a monk and, and lived the holy life named Angulimala. Garland of fingers is what that means. And his, his given name was Ahimsa, means harmless. But he was had a jealous teacher led him astray. And he was convinced him he had to kill a thousand people 
And uh, so he, he did all this and it's said that the Buddha was passing through the area where he was, he was just about to get his last victim and it was his mother, Angulimala's mother. And the Buddha s- saw this and he saw this would really be bad. It's bad enough as it is. So he put himself in the way. And in the, in the kind of mythological story, the Buddha is walking, lifting, moving, placing. <laughs> Maybe just moving, placing, medium speed. And Angulimala is running after him with a sword to chop him and he can't catch him. And he says, stop. And the Buddha said, I have stopped. You need to stop. And this transformed his mind in that moment and he became a follower of the Buddha and um, eventually became fully enlightened. And there's a beautiful story. It said that he was very kind-hearted. His ahimsa roots <laughs> came forward, forward after he ordained and, and uh, he was, he was very, very kind and tender-hearted. And he was on alms round going through a village and uh, he heard uh, a woman in childbirth having a difficult labor. And his heart was very moved by hearing this. And he went back to the Buddha and he said, is there something we can do? And the Buddha said, go back and tell those people and tell the, the woman in childbirth that you've never harmed a living being. And he said, I can't do that. You know, I've harmed a lot of beings. And the Buddha said, go and tell them that since you took birth in the holy life, in this life now, in the robes, that you've never harmed a living being. And Angulimala said, yes, I can say that. And so he went back and he said, "Uh, since I have taken birth in the holy life, I have never intentionally harmed a living being. By the power of this truth, may you be eased. Said, sister, may you be eased. And, And it brought relief and ease. And to this day, there's an Angulimala Paritta. You know, we, the Metta Sutta is one of the Paritta chants, these blessing protection chants. There's an Angulimala Paritta that is used to this day. You can find recordings on YouTube and, and it's used, uh, it's chanted during childbirth, during labor. Mm. So really understanding this really is, can be powerful in our lives and it can really uh, transform our view, how we see things in the world. And it's really worth coming to a, a genuine, real understanding, each of us for ourselves in a practical way. And it's said that kamma is our only true property. And Sayada Upandita, a Burmese meditation master, said this about that. Our concepts of ownership and control over material objects are basically illusory, for all matter is impermanent and subject to decay. Kama is our only reliable possession in the world. Karma has an immediate effect upon the mind, causing joy or misery, depending on whether it is wholesome or unwholesome. And it also has long-term consequences. Seeing life in this way gives us the power to choose the conditions under which we want to live. Thus, the view of kama as our true reliable property is called the light of the world, for by it we can see and evaluate the nature of our choices. Right understanding of kama is like a railroad junction where the train can choose the direction it wants to travel. So the power of the mind, of intention in the mind, really has uh, far-reaching consequences. And if we pay attention there, it's really, uh, really you could say in a way it's kind of the locus of, of our practice. And we can choose like a train choosing the tracks it wants to go down, or we can choose the kinds of seeds we wish to plant. So let's just sit quietly for a moment.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.